giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chris Toomey and also our guest, Ryan Buckley. Hey, Ryan. Hey. Uh, so you are a co-founder of Scripted.com. Yes, I am. Can you give us kind of the elevator pitch for that? So we make it easy for businesses to get high-quality writing uh, we solve the problem that most businesses have in that they need to get a lot of writing done, but they just don't have time to do it. Most people are not great writers, and uh, we try to solve that problem for them. So if I need content of some kind, I can say, hey, I need you know a dozen blog posts of this nature, and you can make that happen for me? Yeah, and we're actually becoming much more of a marketplace now than we have been. We've been kind of a black box you give us a writing assignment, you get a blog post back, and you really don't have much visibility into what's happening in between. We're going to put the writers front and center um, and and remove the black box, actually, and you can see the freelancers that we're working with. You can choose your freelancer. You can conference call them. You can direct message them. Our expectation is that this will produce a better a better product ultimately for you and it's also changed the way that we get revenue as a result of opening things up like that it's been a really interesting transition yeah that's a that's a pretty big change almost from like a consult uh, productized consulting service to a marketplace exactly yep uh, so what was the motivation for that um, well it was largely due to customers um, nudging us in this way both directly and indirectly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the indirect way that they've done it is simply by not renewing our contracts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so kind of a big signal when we can get them to sign on for a few months of writing and then they say, ah, you know what, I'm, I'd, I'd rather just go month to month with you guys and not be on the hook for a certain amount of writing. Mm-hmm. And we had that happen enough where uh, we just all put our heads together and said, you know, like what, what really feels like the problem here? And it's, it's that ultimately most businesses, they don't really know how much writing they want each month. And the writing that, that you get, and I know you guys have been talking about some other writing services mm-hmm. that, that, that you're using, it can be a little hit or miss. And when, when you miss... It was also difficult for us to explain why we would miss mm-hmm. when we're charging a specific, like a kind of a fixed amount for that blog post. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to get, so we decided also that we needed to get scripted out of the transaction because we would be in, in transparency, like we were marking up the writing rate mm-hmm. about a hundred percent. So like say a writer gets $50, we would charge a little over $100 for that blog post. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem was was also a disparity between the price that we're charging and the value that our customers felt that they were getting. Hmm. So by by getting ourselves out from the middle, we're going to lower that that take rate from 100% down to about 8% mm-hmm. and then charge a membership fee. So our blog posts will go from a little over $100 on average to probably a little over $50 on average. Hmm. Um, and that might be more aligned from 
like an expectation standpoint mm -hmm. with our customers. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll charge a monthly membership fee that kind of a cancel anytime subscription um, to be kind of like a Costco membership. Or I, I don't know what, what big box stores are out there in Boston, like Sam's Club or something. Mm -hmm. You sort of you 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 pay to get access to these goods, and the, in our case, the goods are relationships with writers, and then we handle the the transactions and everything. So so yeah, fundamental change in the way that we're doing business. And I mean, we're talking like four and a half years since we launched. We were doing business one way, uh -huh. and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to do business a completely different way. Wow. So the way you're describing that, it sounds as though there's almost going to be a, a hard transition. Is that the plan or is this more gradual as new people come on, they'll be on the new uh, kind of structure? It's a pretty big change, yeah. obviously. So It is. Yeah. So there are some contracts that we're going to have to grandfather and uh, the engineers are just going to have to maintain two systems, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> for, for, yep, it happens, um, for at least a short period of time, I will be doing my best to renegotiate our existing contracts and move them over. Fortunately for our, our higher volume people, they're going to see a great cost savings by moving over to our new model. And, uh, I don't think it'll be a hard conversation to have. So the thing that would worry me if I were in your shoes is that you might actually have a whole new customer base that you need to talk to now because yes. before the people that are working with you don't want to deal with any of this and they want you to handle all that writer communication and all that. And the yes. new people need to want that. Yeah, um, you're right. We are having to, um, in the process of like starting to socialize these these changes to our existing smaller customers and we're very much like a, a power law like we have just a small handful of customers doing a lot of revenue and then a ton of customers doing a small amount of revenue like hundreds of dollars a month those guys yeah they're used to a certain amount of service and not all of them are stoked about having to communicate with writers mm -hmm. our, originally our value prop was don't talk to writers, you know, come to scripted because you don't want to deal with freelancers and, uh, you know, it's annoying and it's hard and, and you don't have time for that. So come to scripted, use our black box because it saves you time. The saving time piece is still going to be true because we've done all the vetting and everything and we're just going to have to like really crisp up that value, like that benefit mm -hmm. of using our, our screened pool of writers. And then also make it clear that, hey, we're not telling you to get on the phone with these writers because we're trying to be lazy. We're telling you to do this because you're going to get a better blog post if you do. Mm -hmm. So with the new model, is there an intended like correct or uh, ideal number of conversations that you expect to happen? Is there a particular flow of there's a draft and a second draft and then a final uh, is there any sort of defined sequence there? Is it basically you're just connecting up to individuals and then letting them take it from there? Yeah, I would. I expect to see the decay, like kind of the the touch point decay between business and a writer, really happen over the over the course of like a month or um, over the course of a series of jobs. Like the first time you're working with a writer. Maybe there's a conference call and a bunch of direct messages as the two sides kind of feel each other out, 
But by the time you're on your third or fourth blog post with that same writer, you shouldn't need to communicate with them at all outside of just putting the job into scripted. So we're still, we'll still have the job form. So you got to push that in there. And that's kind of the kind of the, the fundamental unit is like this job object. So they have to create that job object regardless of whether they talk to the writer or not. So I, I'd suspect that that for a given pairing between a business and a, and a writer, um, on the, the third or fourth job, we're not going to see as much communication um, as the very first one. And that, that's, that's another point that we're going to have to make clear to our customers that there's some upfront investment in establishing the relationship. But think of this and content marketing should always be thought of as a long-term investment. Mm -hmm. And you're investing in a relationship with a ghostwriter who over time is just going to know you and there should be less investment on your, t uh, on, on your time as you continue to work with that same writer. So is it safe to say then that uh, historically the business model lended itself towards switching between writers more than say the new model will, where you're trying to, like you said, form a relationship between this business and the writer? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's also going to be a direct side effect of uh, opening it up. Um, we, we had like aliases where you could, cause businesses would communicate with our support team and say like, yeah, Rachel M like didn't do a great job, but, but John D did. So we had like first name, last initial. It just, we kind of needed to do that to, to do good support. And we eventually built a favoriting function where if you really like Rachel, you favorite Rachel and then she'll get a 24 hour heads up on, on all of your jobs before it goes out to the broader freelance pool. And business is really like that, but this is much more intimate because now you can like assign a job straight to Rachel and it's like only Rachel's unless she decides not to do it. So yeah, uh, that's, that's true. Hmm. How old is the company now? Five years. We Five launched years. in 2011. And it's a venture funded organization? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Uh, we've raised 15 million uh, since we launched. Mm -hmm. So, was the move to a marketplace, was this like looking at a business saying, hey, this is going well, but we think there's something that could 10x us over here? Or is it more like, this basic thing is not that great, let's try this other thing? It really came down to the other thing was growing too slowly. Mm -hmm. And you know we're seeing this this more and more in Silicon Valley right now. Our burn rate was just too high. You know, like like a lot of venture funded companies here in San Francisco, we are not profitable. We've never been profitable, and uh, until just recently, we didn't even have profitability in sight, like nowhere in sight. Mm -hmm even with our most aggressive, optimistic, top-line revenue growth targets. And we actually just did a, a round of layoffs um, a few weeks ago and trimmed down. Like We're about half the size that we were three months ago in headcount. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was like a lot part of this transition was um, also like it was, it was just too expensive to – maintain um, a sales team and, and a certain level of quality assurance that we, was required by us being in the middle of the transaction like that. Mm -hmm. So all of the factors that, I, that I've already mentioned around just hearing what our customers were really saying, 
wanting to get the quality of our output better by getting writers and businesses talking to each other kind of meant that we couldn't take half of what the business was paying mm -hmm. um, to writers. Like we needed to shrink our cut of the transaction. Otherwise, it would be more likely that writer and business go off platform and we get disintermediated. So a, a lot of that stuff, we then look at the business structure and be like, okay, we can't really have a sales team. We can't really have a, a quality assurance team. And then we also made a, a hard decision to let go of both of our product managers. Hmm. And we're letting engineering run product again, <laughs> uh, which is Terrible idea. <laughs> We've got engineers running product here and it does not go well. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting to hear. It sounds like you were starting to head towards profitability, perhaps with the kind of original business model, but for various reasons. You thought, all right, we, we've got to switch this up. And the nature of the transition sounds uh, relatively extreme. So yeah. I, I guess my question to you is pretty soon you're going to be sort of resetting a lot of the clocks. And so yeah. wins that you have in terms of understanding your core audience, understanding positioning and what are kind of the key phrases and pain points that you're hitting. Uh, you're yeah. still very close to what you were before, but do you have uh, kind of a plan in mind of a, a growth strategy and a way to be experimenting and kind of learning anew again now that you're resetting all of this. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be much, much more about funnel. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to be kind of interesting. It's, it's not unlike um, you guys, like Upcase and Formkeep, where we didn't, we're, we, we're not going to have a sales team anymore. So it's e-commerce, and that will be driven fundamentally by all of the all of the funnel steps and understanding where the funnel leaks are um, we'll be paying much more attention to that that entire flow and then the critical piece of this is retention um, and that's really where we've been lacking in our metrics like our, our retention has historically been pretty poor and we're optimistic that the combination of the membership fee and then personal relationships within the platform are going to keep people much more engaged than they have in the past. But fundamentally, we get to now look at more traditional SaaS metrics, but we're also going to look at the new kind of uh, marketplace metrics that people are talking about now, which uh, the primary one is is gross marketplace value. GMV is the is the big one which speaks to liquidity, just like how much flow is going through the marketplace in a given month. And then on top of that, we'll be looking at our SaaS metrics. What's our monthly churn from a from an average revenue per user, just pure membership? What what does that look like? Is that going up or down? We, we hope that people will be ratcheting up because we're going to introduce these membership tiers as well. Hmm. So like it's, it's going to be a really interesting business model because it's not pure SaaS. It's not pure marketplace. And it's not the sales driven, we're looking at sales velocity and contracts, like um, the sales cycle and, and how long it takes to sign a contract. All of that's gone. We have no more contracts. Well, it's, it's interesting, Ryan. I, I wasn't expecting you to come in and be so open and honest about what's going on. <laughs> well, it's kind of in the spirit of what you guys yeah, do on the, totally. on, on the podcast. Like, it's just so refreshing mm. to hear two guys actually talking about their MRR <laughs> and you know, like what your open rates are on your emails. It doesn't happen here in San Francisco. I'll tell you that. Huh, really? 
Yeah. Well, I think in general, you hear much more about successes. And I think we certainly talk about our successes on here, but we're also not uh, afraid of talking about our failures. And I think yeah. uh, there's tons to be learned from both sides, but the failures really do have a lot of very interesting uh, pieces to pull out uh, and failure is even a strong word here but things you know failed experiments i think is a good way to mm -hmm. describe it going into it with the mm -hmm. mindset that you know what this might go well this might not uh, yeah. and just you know the constant iteration things like that and you know you're you're in the midst of a, a pretty sizable iteration right now ryan but yeah uh my question earlier was leading towards this is going to lead you into lots of micro iteration that you get to kind of reset on and start figuring out what's the voice of this thing who are we going for we need a lot more customers so how do we get a bigger volume of people coming through and yeah, it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, and, and all of those all of those new problems are what are going to keep our key employees around because uh, you now we have people coming up on three and four year anniversaries here, so it was it was hard to to do like a big round of layoffs when we also have some some older key employees that we wanted we really wanted to keep, and and fortunately like the whole company is is totally rallied around this new vision. We're, we're all pumped up about it. And I think for a lot of us who have been around the block with Scripted, it's, it's just going to be another fascinating chapter in this company. And like we've been through the muck before, like my, my co-founder stepped down as CEO a little over a year ago, which is like this whole other series of interesting things to, to deal with. And we, we brought in a really great CEO out of McKinsey, eBay, and a few other marketplaces. He just joined us in August. So yeah, I mean, shit happens. I don't know. Can I say that on a podcast? <laughs> yeah, we can. We'll bleep it. What, whatever. Okay. All right. Yeah. Stuff happens. And, and a lot of companies don't really talk about it, mm -hmm. but CEO turnover happens more often than is publicized. Layoffs in startups happen more often than gets publicized. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like I, I feel like people should be open about it. And I'm a big believer in, in trying to help new entrepreneurs, younger entrepreneurs really understand what they're getting into mm. when they're going after venture funding as opposed to like trying to bootstrap. And I have a little bit of experience on both sides of it. I mean, I think in general, you should just always keep a bootstrap mentality. Even if you end up raising money from VCs, you'll get better terms if you if you just keep a bootstrap mentality and 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 not overspend. Is is that the main part of the mentality? Is just watching your spending? Yeah, I think just uh, operating like every dollar matters. Um, because even if you've raised fifteen million in equity, every dollar still does matter. Mm -hmm. uh, because at some point you're going to run out. And at some point, you're going to have to make some really hard decisions. Mm -hmm. So if, if you operate like you're bootstrapping all along, then you're, you just wind up in a much better position. And then when a key hire or a key opportunity comes up where you do have to like throw some money down, which is why you raise money and, and have the opportunity to grow your costs ahead of revenue, then, then you do it. And, and you should, because that's why you raised the money. But you got to do that very intelligently uh, and just be aware of the opportunity cost of spending here versus there versus trying to go for break even. Mm. I noticed you have a chief revenue officer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Is, is the goal to one day change that title to chief profit officer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometime in 2017. Nice. That'll be, yeah, Chief chief Profit Officer. I don't think I've heard that title before. 
So, so it's his job to basically make sure, like, hey, by the way, we need to make money. Don't forget, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think um, in our case, the the CRO was the idea was someone who is who oversees the entire funnel. So that's like marketing, sales, and then fulfillment or mm. customer success. So it's kind of like the, the the chief of all things that impact revenue. Hmm. So I also noticed that uh, your title, at least in some of the places on the internet, is a co-founder and chief everything else officer. Uh, yeah. So actually, yeah. would you mind talking a little bit about what the kind of uh, delineated roles are and then what the uh, everything else slice that you, in theory, are uh, are grabbing there? Yeah. So I guess like maybe in order to answer that, I, I'll give like a really brief bio of myself because I, I think that that context might help. From a, just starting with entrepreneurship, really, I started building organizations before I built my first company. And like the very first thing I did from like a real leadership standpoint was in high school, I organized a group of fellow classmates who would go around the, the campus picking up trash. Like we called it Mission Trash Pickup. The janitors loved us so much, they actually gave us our own rolling trash can. And you know, that was like my group. That was my thing. Every Wednesday after school, like these this other dorks and I would go around picking up trash. And I really liked it. It was this good group of people. And that's also kind of where like leadership, holy smokes, I, if I can get people to go around picking up trash with me, I could probably get them to do just about anything. And uh, that's what got me into more environmental organizing on campus at, at UC Berkeley did a bunch of like an environmental group organizing there. Um, fast forwarding to the original company before Scripted, we were a screenwriting software company called Script, spelled with uh, double P-E-D. Met my co-founder in Los Angeles. His best friend was a screenwriter, became our third co-founder, and we put out this screenwriting software, which in retrospect was a terrible idea. We didn't know how to make money, so we started like a little SaaS thing, um, except screenwriters, most of them are, are broke. A handful of them are millionaires, but most of them don't want to pay for anything. And uh, really bad idea to build a company around a customer base that, that by and large does not have disposable income. We, we thought we could sell scripts to Hollywood. Um, that just proved to be very difficult as well. So we, we pivoted into Scripted in 2011. We actually launched the screenwriting company in 2008. So all along, my co-founder, um, the one that, that I met, where I worked with in LA was the CEO. And I was like the COO, kind of the, the internal guy. When we did our articles of incorporation, someone needed to be the CFO. So I was that too. And I think officially, since we never actually changed the company structure when we pivoted over to scripted and content marketing. I think officially, corporately, I'm still the CFO of Scripted Incorporated. So that just kind of gives a sense of like, in the early days, I was responsible for payroll, I was responsible for accounting, taxes, finding our office, um, doing hiring paperwork. In the early days, I was marketing and sales. Uh, my co-founder as CEO, he was responsible for investor relations, PR, press inquiries, speaking engagements, organizing speaking events, like anything outward facing 
that was his, anything inward facing, that was mine. Mm -hmm. And I think most co-founder, like pair founder relationships work out well that way. When you have co-CEOs, I think that gets a little complicated. And like probably the major, the, the biggest risk that young companies have when they first start out is what, is what the, the funders call founder risk in that you know the founding team breaks up because there's not a, a clean delineation of tasks. So that's why I called myself the everything else officer. Hmm. So what does that look like then uh, these days? So I'm kind of back into that. I was I was heading up sales for a while. I was I was like the back office guy before that. Um, now I'm doing biz dev, sales, and back on the operations side because we let go of our office manager as part of the layoffs, hmm. um, as well as our entire sales team and the sales manager at that point. Hmm. Are you happy doing a wide variety of things? I am. It's it it really fits my my personality well. I've always been a little bit of a renaissance kind of entrepreneur. I when I led the sales team for a year, I really enjoyed deep diving into that because there's just a ton of stuff when you really get into sales and I'd actually like to talk to you guys briefly about what I see is the similarities and differences maybe between sales and engineering, but yeah, totally. I, I really think there's some interesting stuff. Yeah, go for it. There. Okay, I'll just segue into that then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I would put my stake in the sand that the best engineer you know and the best salesperson you know are remarkably similar people. Hmm. I think the rationale there is that the level of discipline uh, to become a great programmer and the level of creativity, say, to become a great programmer or engineer, same kind of deep skill set and, I'd say, personality kind of character traits that make um, a great salesperson. Because the best salespeople are extremely disciplined and they also are creative. They got to sort of think on their feet. But it's this unique combination of almost a, a mechanical discipline and then the ability to have these moments of like epiphany and creativity that break through and, and are the difference between a good salesperson and a great salesperson or a good engineer and a great engineer. And I think. For, for your audience, I know are primarily engineers, what they really should take away from this, and maybe the next time they, to you engineers listening, next time you talk to a salesperson, the, 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 the appreciation that I hope engineers can have for sales is that there is just so much data and so much tracking and kind of this, this normalization around their activities like everything really boils down to a touch point or an interaction that gets recorded into a CRM. There is very much like a process that needs to be followed. And the best salespeople simply follow the process and have the discipline of following up when they say they're going to follow up and juggling multiple threads simultaneously, much the way engineers do. And that a salesperson will have like 20 conversations up in the air at the same time. So I don't know. I think that sales and engineering don't often see eye to eye, but there are a lot more similarities than differences in the two disciplines. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's an amount that that definitely resonates with me. The idea of the kind of mechanical repetition and working within a process, a defined process, a defined set of steps, but then occasionally needing to step out and like, well, there isn't a solution that I know of for this, so I have to think of something else. Uh, That speaks to me on both the... Uh, definitely the developer side, but also a little bit on the the project management side and figuring out how to take this product, this platform that we have and, and grow it forward and keep doing the things that we need to move that forward. So it's an interesting framework. Yeah, I think on the engineering side, it's it's like following style conventions and writing good tests and like not cutting corners on on test-driven development. It's like sales has its own version of that and the best salespeople follow it and they, they don't deviate. Um, I think the one difference that I've seen between sales people and, and engineers, sales cares more about money. They, they just, they, they care a lot more about their compensation. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the biggest difference and maybe the most visible one. And that's why there's this like sales people and engineers don't really get along. They're totally different hmm. um, because of that. Cause you kind of see it like most engineers aren't going to walk around flashing their Rolex the way salespeople do, but like double click down, peel back that first layer. And, and I really think they're very similar people. Hmm. I actually did. Uh, I dabbled in sales briefly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember I was talking to the existing sales guy uh, or the salesperson for the company and I was going to go talk to the CEO to try to pitch myself as the new person. And he said, tell him you want to make a lot of money. That's his <laughs> advice. Yeah. 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 Like, that's the magic it, word. So we've caught you at an interesting time. You're kind of at a turning point. Things are up in the air. Would you Mm -hmm. describe yourself as a combination of worried and excited? Yeah, although I'm not like exceptionally worried right now. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I'm not any more worried than I was before we changed our our business. Mm. And I'm not not any worried than, than like six months before that. It's just kind of a different kind of worried. Mm. Um by lowering our burn this much, one level of anxiety is mm. is, is removed, mm-hmm. but there's a, another one placed on because now we kind of have to prove to our board that we're heading in the right direction. And there's a, a, an expectation that we set to our, our constituents, you know, our, our major shareholders, the, the people who invested in us that that we can make this work and that, that we, we, we did our homework before making this drastic of a move. Mm-hmm. So, so that's like a new kind of pressure. Um, whereas before it was more business as usual, but you know, we kind of got the feeling that, that the investors were getting restless and, and mm-hmm. waiting for us to inflect our growth curve. Um, and it's been pretty slow and upward, but the, the, the slope is not, high enough uh-huh. for for them hmm. would it have been enough if it were just you well what do you mean by that like just was me? it was it enough for you like if you didn't have investors to satisfy would you have said hey this is going fine oh, let's not change everything oh yeah 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 um well from a growth standpoint yeah it would have been it would have been fine from a cost standpoint if it was just me like it would have never been able to get that bad like mm-hmm. we would have never spent we never we would have never lost as much money each month if I was bootstrapping. I think by definition we would have we would have been bankrupt. Um, <laughs> so it's yeah, and that's the double-edged sword of of taking venture money is it's almost like it breeds bad habits 
by allowing you to run a business in the red. And, you know, like I explained to my family what we do and, and, you know, of course, then they ask, oh, like, what's your profit each month? And I said, well, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're about. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and it just baffles them. Like, wait, what do you, like, your investors are okay with you being unprofitable? And yeah, to anyone outside of this valley, it doesn't make sense. Any other business with our revenue growth, assuming that we are profitable, would, would, would be great. Um, it wouldn't be enough for a VC to really get like ecstatic. Mm-hmm. But you know that the game's changed in the last few months, and there's there's much more of a, an, an emphasis on fundamentals rather than potential. So when you say fundamentals, are is that profitability? Is that well, what what fits into fundamentals when you say that? Not necessarily profitability. Like the the fundamentals that are important now are your unit economics. And in a nutshell, what that is is for for a given sale um, or a given customer, is the lifetime value greater than the acquisition cost to to get that customer? And your unit economics can be positive while you're still unprofitable. Right, so if you're pouring money into paid acquisition and things like that, you have yet to actually earn the full lifetime value from that customer and you're just, you're putting a lot of money in at the top, but hopefully that will turn into more money throughout the funnel. Yeah, but if you know that you're you're putting in $5 of marketing spend for every $1 of profit and you don't see that $1 ever becoming $5, then you are just digging your hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Even if you have millions of dollars to spend on acquiring that $1 of profit. So you can still be on an upward revenue growth. And a lot of companies right now are doing this. Even though they're spending $5 to get $1, they are just pouring money into it so that those $1 keep their revenue lines going up. But that is just a fundamentally bad business um, <laughs> but they can make themselves look good by just burning money like just just lighting a match and burning it i feel like there's only one place in the world where you have to explain <laughs> that that's not good <laughs> yeah. yeah it's clear well, that you've had to have this conversation more than once and that people have been yeah. like no no you just don't get it and you're like no no the math you yeah. i guess just don't get it yeah so so the, the case where your your revenue is good and your unit economics are positive, but you're still unprofitable. The the revenue that you get from a customer more than covers the acquisition cost. Or I should say the profit you get from a given customer more than covers the the acquisition cost, like all of the marketing, all of the sales, all of those salaries. So unit economics are positive, but you have an office, you have engineers, you have management those more fixed-ish costs are going to drive your, your your profit negative. So it's like your revenue engine is healthy and, and that's great. Um, you're just waiting for that revenue engine to catch up with all of these fixed costs that should be pretty flat because they, they're not going to go up with profit. Like you're not going to need to necessarily hire more engineers and hire more management as your profit increases. So if you're negative there, at some point, the two lines are going to meet, and that's your break-even point. And then if you keep your headcount flat across the rest of the organization and you keep 
profitably getting customers, then then you're in the clear. Every time you get a new customer, you're adding more profit to the business. Yep. So that's where you want to be. And, and I think, you know, we're in that category now. Like we have good unit economics. We have uh, a pretty high fixed cost structure that we need to dig ourselves out of. But our marketing channels and everything are good. So that's why I'm still optimistic and still pretty pumped to get through the rest of this year and, and uh, just really look forward to 2017. Cool. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, good luck with that transition. Oh, thank you. Well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up, actually. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming by and being on the podcast. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you um, <laughs> responding to that random email that, that I sent you about trails and trials and uh, that stuff. Yeah, so. totally. And, and by the way, for other people listening, stop sending us random emails about being on the podcast because we decided <laughs> oh. to, you're, you're one of the last few that's sneaking in, right? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right. But, but yeah, uh, it, was, it was good chatting with you. Okay. All right. Thanks, Ben and Chris. Nice to talk to you. Uh, do you have a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to have some questions or something like that? Absolutely. Um, Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at scripted.com or Twitter at Arbucks, R-B-U-C-K-S. Perfect. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 186. Thanks for listening. 